A year ago this uh, June 23rd, one nation became captivated by uh, an amazing rescue effort that was taking place there. And it wasn't long before all of us, I think, in some way, shape, or form became captivated. There was a soccer team, 12 young boys and their coach, who, uh, who were very well bonded, a super, super tight group. And, and they had this initiation right that they would practice. Every time uh, a new young man came on board, was old enough to become part of their team, the wild boars they were called. And their initiation right involved hiking nearly two and a half miles into this cave complex in northern Thailand where they would all take their handprints, stick them in the mud, and they would put their handprints on the wall, and that was the way that a new player was initiated onto the team. But it was June in Thailand, and Thailand, the rainy season, is typically in the summertime, and so uh, it, it was monsoon season. It had been raining quite a bit. It had been raining quite a bit the week before, but it hadn't rained in several days, and so the coach and the boys together decided, let's go ahead and do this. We've got a new member of the team. We've got to go, ahead, got, got to go through with this initiation, right? And so they pick up, they leave soccer practice, and they hike into the cave, not thinking of the rain that may be happening a little bit further up in the mountains. And as they're in the cave, they go through their initiation, right? And they start to hike their way back out. And all of a sudden, a section that they had passed before that was passable was no longer passable it was now submerged in water. Well, the first clue that, that I think many had, or that some had, that, that the team had gone missing and that something was wrong, one of the boys was 16, and his birthday actually was going to be celebrated that evening. As he was turning 17, his parents had the presents ready, they had the cake ready. It was a SpongeBob SquarePants cake. <laughs> I kid you not. SpongeBob is global. But he didn't make it home for his presents, and he didn't make it home for his SpongeBob SquarePants cake, and his parents knew that that was not to be expected. It was his birthday celebration, and he wouldn't miss that. It wasn't unusual for him to be out late with his friends, but on this night, he would not go missing. He would come home. He obviously would. And so the parents started calling around, trying to figure out what was going on, and one parent had been part of a group text that indicated that the boys intended with their coach to hike into the cave system and go through this initiation right. And so they found out that way that now we know where the boys are. We need to go see something's gone wrong. We got to go looking for them. And as they get to the mouth of the cave, they see all the soccer cleats and all the bikes piled up by the cave and they realize it's been raining further up in the mountains and slowly they start to figure out what's going on. And of course, right away, they start to pray that it would stop raining. Well, the next day, June 24th, between June 23rd and June 24th, it had rained so hard that the initial rescue efforts had to be suspended. Because not only now was one section of the cave, in fact, the rescue workers had gotten two miles back in the cave complex. They were half a mile from where the boys eventually ended up. But they weren't able to get any further because it kept raining and kept raining, and it got too dangerous for them to go further because for them to go further, they would also get trapped in the cave. And so they started to have to think of, of plan B. And so they started bringing water pumps on June 25th. And the Thailand Navy SEALs were brought in to try to figure out what they could do. And many of them had rescue diving experience, but none of them in caves. By June 27th, 
the search began to widen. They started to look, are there other ways that we could get into these caves because we're having a really hard time getting through the complex and not sure that we're going to be able to pull it off this way. And by that date as well, only four days after the boys had gone missing, a thousand international relief workers and searchers are now at this complex gathered together. By June 30th, the rains eased a little bit, and the efforts begin where where actually now we have divers going back into the cave and trying to find their way in there. It took them three more days to finally reach the boys. And I want to show you a quick map of what it looked like by the time they reached the boys outside of the cave entrance. This is just a, a drawing that points out um, how, how well organized this had become at this point. You can see, here's the cave entrance. There's where the Thai Navy SEALs were. The water pumps are over there. There's a first aid station, the relatives there, toilet area, which they were cleaning every day because it got pretty crazy with a thousand people camped here trying to find out how can we rescue these boys because the world was captivated by this story. Everybody, I mean, even Elon Musk is jumping into this thing, right? The guy, who, uh, the guy who's the CEO of Tesla came up with what he thought might work, this little, uh, this little uh, scuba, uh, it's like submarine, small submarine that, that you put the kids into and hopefully they'd be able to navigate through the caves because the kids weren't scuba divers and they didn't know what they were doing. Everybody's getting involved. What can we do to try to help? Well, on July 8th, the rescuers decide because they knew that some more storms were coming. And they knew that by July 10th, they estimated that by, by July 10th, the entire cave would be submerged, which is typical during the summer. And so they knew their time was running out. They'd also done some tests of the little space that the boys and their coach were camped in and knew that the oxygen levels were starting to get dangerously low. Typically, the oxygen that you and I, or the air that you and I breathe has somewhere around 22% oxygen, and it was down to 15%, where people start to experience negative effects of, of, of oxygen levels that low. And so they knew that the time was, was really becoming crunched. The time frame was crunched. And so they decide, for better or for worse, we're, we're going to have to go for this. And they drew a map of the, the cave, and you can kind of see the map of that cave behind. You can see some of the places where it was submerged and all the places where they were going to have to go through, and there were snags and tangles, and they, they knew that it was not going to be easy. In fact, for these experienced divers to make it through, they were taking their lives into their own hands every time. In fact, one of the world's most experienced divers, in fact, one of Thailand's most experienced divers, had died just a couple days earlier trying to make it to the boys. And so they knew that the complexity of this mission, it was intense. They knew that the chances of survival were, were, were slim. That they were taking their lives in their own hands, they were taking the lives of the boys into their hands, but they had to do something if there was a chance at rescue. By that evening at 9 p.m., with the world watching, the first four seals and four boys emerged. The boys were heavily sedated because they didn't know how they would react and didn't want to take the chance that they might panic with scuba gear uh, on under the water. They had full face masks on. By the next day, another four boys come out, and by July 10th, the day that they knew the cave would likely be submerged, the last four boys were found. 
Well, you can imagine the scene in Thailand and in the little town there as people were standing by and they were cheering and as they heard the news, it blew their minds. Could this really have happened? I mean, could a rescue like this really have been pulled off? And the answer was yes. The celebration was intense. Here's a picture of these boys later again now as they are still the soccer team and biking together. This shows them several months after the incident. It was an amazing story, and it captivated us. It captivated me. Every day I'm, I'm waking up, and I'm checking, and I'm checking news sites to see, has there been any progress? What's happening? And maybe you followed along that way as well. It's amazing some of the videos you can find online documenting the way this proceeded because we love a good rescue story, don't we? I mean, take the odds, take the odds and, and set them, stack them against a rescue happening and, and we're, we're even more engaged and especially when the rescue actually happens, when the stakes are up, we're only more engaged as we follow along. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a story that is, at first glance, it may not look like a rescue, a search and rescue effort, but that's exactly what it was, and Jesus even describes it that way himself. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 19. And before we read this text together, I'm going to pray over the next few minutes that we'll spend in the Word of God. Father, we thank you so much for these words as they are life to us. We thank you, Father, for preserving these words for the last 2,000 years so that we may read them and, and, and digest these stories afresh, that our hearts may be captivated as we see Jesus at work and the way he loves and cares and the way he searches us out as well. We're so thankful for him. We pray that as we read these words, they might come alive to us anew, alive to us anew. That our hearts would be touched. That your Holy Spirit would be at work in us and on us as we read and as we study together. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Well, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. You can follow along with me on the screen behind me and I'll read these words for you and we'll together kind of try to pull this story apart and pack it and see what's there for us to take away this morning. This is what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Well, let's just try to, try to grab a few things out of this story before we go too much further. And let's, let's ask ourselves a couple quick questions. First is this, what, what can we learn about this character Zacchaeus? I think we need to understand these characters before we go much further. First, what can we learn about Zacchaeus? Well, the first thing we learn about Zacchaeus is this, he was a chief tax collector 
which means in parentheses, bad guy. I mean, it really does. It means bad guy. Tax collectors earned their living by taking more from people than they were intended to. They were appointed by the Roman government, as Bruce told you this morning as we celebrated communion. They would bid on contracts, and once they had that contract, they had the backing of the Roman government to go collect taxes. And the Roman government would say, okay, I will want you to collect this much from everybody, and anything you collect over and beyond that, you get to keep. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector over Jericho. He was the boss. And so he had many other tax collectors working under him, but Zacchaeus was the boss. In fact, he was kind of probably like a mob boss, as we would think of him today. Or maybe we could think of him as, as a drug lord, in a sense. And I know that may sound extreme, but that's the reality of, of how they would have viewed Zacchaeus. I think those are good modern-day parallels when we look at what Zacchaeus was probably, or how Zacchaeus was probably thought of by those around him. He was the guy who was in charge of sending out all these other guys who went and took money from everybody else and took more than they were supposed to take so that they could become wealthy. And remember, it was wealthy by cheating others. I mean, Luke is very honest in telling us Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. I mean, there's intent in that. In fact, Luke, when you read Luke, there's intent in everything he says. He says, look, I've researched all of this. I've brought it all together. I want to do the best I can to tell you these stories that I've collected, and every detail matters. And so when Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was wealthy, it's so that we understand just how Zacchaeus had gotten wealthy and just how far Zacchaeus was willing to go to be wealthy. We also learn about Zacchaeus that he was curious. We talk often here at Grace Chapel about the role that curiosity plays in getting to know Jesus or forming a relationship with anybody. If you see somebody and you're immediate conv immediately convinced that you know exactly what they're like and you're not curious, especially if you don't like what you think they're like, you're very unlikely to form a relationship with them. But we see that Zacchaeus was curious. He was curious about Jesus. He wanted to know, what is this Jesus guy like? And what, what is it that is riling these crowds up so? He was very curious about Jesus. But he had a problem. We're not going to spend too much time here, but he was short. I mean, Zacchaeus was, a, was not a tall guy. And so as all the crowds are gathering and as they're lining the streets, if, you, if you've ever been at a parade and you've had, you know, a young child with you, or maybe you can remember back to the days when you were a young child. I remember very vividly being at a parade when we lived in Europe, and it was a parade where they would throw candy out. Not so unlike the parades that we have here, that they, where they'll throw candy out. And I remember hearing down the road that the candy was coming, but I could not see where the candy was coming from, and I was panicked because I wanted candy. I wasn't curious. I knew exactly what candy was all about, and I needed some. Maybe you've been at that place or you've seen that in one of your children where they're saying, hey, lift me up. I need to see. I need to see. I can't see what's going on. And so Zacchaeus, his dad's not around apparently, and he's probably too old for that at this point in time. Anyway, he starts to think, what can I do? Now, that leads us to the last thing we learn about Zacchaeus 
from these first few verses is that he was willing to humble himself. Now, you may look at that and say, well, why, why do you think he was willing to humble himself? Why would you draw that out of these short few verses? And here's why. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus ran to a tree and then climbed that tree. Now, it was, it was considered undignified, especially for people of means of wealth to run. Maybe you've heard that talked about when we speak, around, uh, speak about Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son and the father actually running out to the child. And you've maybe heard it said in reference to that. It was not dignified for a patriarch or somebody of means and wealth to run. It was not. And so as Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming and all the people are going to the road and Zacchaeus is running behind him, you know some eyes are on him and they're wondering, what's going on with Zacchaeus? What is he doing? Why is he running? Well, Zacchaeus was just curious enough and wanted to see Jesus enough, catch a glimpse of him enough that he was willing to put his dignity to the side for a minute or two and take a run. And then in robes, was willing to climb a tree. Right? We don't need to go there with all that imagery, but robes are not shut at the bottom and he's climbing a tree and everybody's... Anyway... But he was willing to do that because he wanted to see Jesus. And so he was willing to humble himself for a time if that meant he could get a glimpse of Jesus and see what was happening. So so that's what we learn about Zacchaeus in these few verses. So you may or may not be familiar with the next character, Jesus. I hope that you are. But if you're not, what do we learn about Jesus? And even if you are, what do we learn about Jesus in these short few verses? First, we see that that Jesus embraces the fact that there's a sense of urgency about what's going on. I mean, Jesus could have thought, well, I'll I'll see Zacchaeus another time. I'll maybe catch him later. There wasn't going to be much later for Jesus at this point because he was actually making his way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus knows there's a sense of urgency about this. If I'm going to talk to this guy who's curious about me, it's going to happen now. It's not going to be later. There may be no later. And so Jesus says, listen, you've got to come down immediately. I mean, immediately, that, that's a word that conveys urgency. This has got to happen now. And then also, he feels compelled to be with Zacchaeus. The text says this, I must go to your house today. I have to. I mean, Jesus almost makes it seem as if there's no other choice. There's no other place that he could be at that point in time. The mission to rescue Zacchaeus was so urgent that he had to be at his house right then. He had to be there. All right, the last thing we're going to ask is this. What do we learn about the people in the crowd? What do we learn about people? Well, by the reaction that the people have when Jesus calls Zacchaeus down, when they walk to his house, when, when they see Jesus walking in the door, when the door closes, all of a sudden there's a bunch of muttering. Because I think they were placing limits on how far the grace of God could go. And maybe some of them had accepted that Jesus was God in the flesh, and so they've just seen God walk into the house of a sinner. I mean, not just a sinner, a really bad sinner, the chief of the sinners of that town, maybe. And so they look at that and say, look, 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 we've seen God's grace go pretty far at this point. 
Uh, don't, don't miss this piece. In Luke 15, Jesus has to tell several stories to, to illustrate how far he's willing to go to search out and to seek people. How far? He tells the story of a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. He's trying to bring people in and let them know, listen, I will go. This is how big a deal this is. I will go seek out people. I want to find them. This is my mission on earth. This is what I'm about. And he's saying that at that point in time, he's trying to let the Pharisees and the religious, te- the religious keepers of the law, he's trying to let them know, look, these people that I've been coming to reach to this point, some of them were, were prostitutes. Some of them were those who'd been called unclean for other reasons. Some of them were tax collectors at that point even, we see in Luke 14. I've come for these people. Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees, this time we don't necessarily, I mean, the Pharisees are probably here as well, but it's not just the Pharisees this time. Which makes me wonder, are some of the people that Jesus had already reached and connected with, who maybe had lived a life of prostitution, or maybe had lived a life where they were considered unclean by others around them, were they part of the crowd and were they part of the ones who were muttering as well? I mean, some of the ones who'd been rescued by the love of Jesus and they're wondering, yeah, yeah, yeah look, I, I get it. I, I was kind of bad, but he's really bad. And so the reality is that we as people sometimes place limits on how far God's grace can go. And if we don't do that, okay, maybe, maybe you're more noble than that. Maybe you've matured beyond that. The reality is that many of us place limits on the kind of person that will respond to God's grace, at least, right? Is that fair? If you say, no, 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 I, I get it. God's grace can go as far as it needs to to reach somebody. Yeah, God's grace would go there, but would that person actually accept God's grace? I mean, there are times where we just think that there is somebody who's beyond accepting God's grace because of maybe the life choices they've made. They're so hardened because of the fact that maybe they embrace another religious system, right? I don't know about that Muslim. I, I don't know if they would accept God's grace because do you know that right now some of the fastest growth in, in Christ's kingdom is taking place in, in, in Muslim communities? Some of them radicalized Muslim communities. The gospel is spreading faster there than anywhere on the face of the earth right now. But there are times where we say, well, those people are probably just, they're not going to accept the good news about Jesus because they're already thinking other things. They've got other stuff going on. They, they, you don't know about them. They've gone too far in their lives. Their lives. You don't know about that guy at work who... I mean, he's divorced like seven times and he's looking to get married again. And, you know, I mean, what's the message of Jesus? Is he going to listen to that? Is he going to pay attention to that? He's made all these choices to please himself to this point. Is he really going to listen to the message of Jesus now? Sometimes we place limits on the kind of person that will respond to God's grace. And then, in the more real moments, there are times, and I think we certainly see this in the crowd that day, where we may not want certain people to respond. I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, um, in fact, before he was executed, James Dobson had an interview with a guy who was on death row for committing murder, multiple murders, a guy named Ted Bundy. Maybe you remember him. 
And the story was that while he was in prison, while he was in death row, he came to Christ. He, he found Jesus. He was baptized in a prison cell before he was taken to the execution chamber, before he was put in an electric chair. He, I mean, he came to Jesus, and he remembers talking. I mean, he, he became an advocate for, for avoiding things like pornography that he said just absolutely destroyed his mind. It seems that he had a very, very real conversion, yet there were a lot of people who said, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if I can buy that. And I wonder, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of in there where, where we place limits on how far God's grace can go, and maybe to some degree we wonder what kind of person would actually respond to God's grace, but maybe isn't there some more of, there are some people we would rather didn't actually respond because they've just done things that are too bad. We, is it possible that sometimes that is what we see happening not just in the hearts of the crowd that day, but it could be happening in our hearts at times as well. All right, well, as we've got an introduction to the, I think, the three major players in the story, let's go ahead and finish this rescue story together. Luke says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, remember, he's just been called down out of the, out of the tree. He has gone with Jesus into the house. They've made their way. The crowd is muttering, Zacchaeus probably heard the mutters the whole way. And he probably heard the exclamation, look, Jesus is going to be the guest of a sinner. Probably heard that as well. And at some point in time in the meal, as Zacchaeus is reclining by the table, there's this moment where he is so convicted of what has happened that he pops up out of his seat or his bench where he was reclining really, and he says, he exclaims, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Whatever it takes to make this right, what I've done wrong, whatever I have to do to make it right, here I am because I see the depths to which you've gone to rescue and save me. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then here we see almost Jesus' summary of his mission on earth where he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says it again, just as plain as he can say it. It's almost as if Jesus says, there's a world full of people who are lost without me, and I intend to find them. A world full of people who are lost without me, and I intend to find them. And I think something, again, worth pointing out in this, because I think sometimes we, we get our minds a little bit skewed on this. It's this, that Jesus doesn't just respond to lost people. I think that's sometimes what we think. We think, well, Jesus responds to lost people who've already gotten their minds straight and they're starting to turn to him a little bit somewhat. And no, Jesus doesn't just respond to lost people. It is plain in Luke's gospel. He seeks them out. Jesus goes searching for lost people. That is the Jesus I want to follow. I want you to think with me just for a second. There's, there's a, a moment where Jesus makes a very powerful statement to Zacchaeus as he's sitting in Zacchaeus' house. And I don't know who else was around. There were probably other guests. I'm sure Zacchaeus you know, had the guest of honor, and so he wants to invite other people to come be a part of the experience as well as they eat and dine together. 
And there's a moment where Jesus makes a really powerful statement. And the reality is, you can think about places where this is true, it's not just what you say, the words you use, but how you say that matters as well. I mean, if you're married for like a day, you learned that one probably, right? Hopefully you learned it even before you were married, that it's not just what you say and the words you say, but how you say them as well. And so I want you to think with me just for a second. How do you think... Maybe with what inflection, how, what did Jesus, what was the expression on his face as he says these next words? What did his voice sound like as he says, today salvation has come to this house? You say it in just a really intellectual, very professorial way. Today salvation has come to this house. You just kind of pass it off. Well, salvation's come to this place today and it's a really good thing, you know. Or was he just full of celebration because he couldn't believe that Zacchaeus, the one he'd gone to rescue, that he had to be with, it was immediate, it was urgent, had responded the way he had and he declares while celebrating this news, today salvation has come to this house. Can you see Jesus saying that? Can you see the expression on his face, the, the, the way he would have felt as well as he's expressing that? And I think as we take this story and we, we bring the whole thing together, we, we see Zacchaeus, we see Jesus, we see the crowd, we understand ourselves in this to some degree as well. Here's the takeaway and here's what I want to leave you with this morning. And it's a strong encouragement. And don't place limits on the grace of God. Instead, choose to celebrate the advance of grace even into the darkest corners of a human heart. This should be something we're celebrating instead of something that we're skeptical about. And I know I've been there too. I'll tell you just about myself in the last few months. I, I was got to be part of a group of guys who were hearing a story about uh, th this man who's, who's in Sierra Leone and is, is leading, I mean, it's one of the strongholds of Boko Haram, if you're familiar with who Boko Haram is, a radicalized Muslim group. And so he is leading this movement that in the last 15 years has taken the population of, the Christian population of Sierra Leone from 9% to 38% in an incredible, incredibly radicalized area. And you know some of the first thoughts that go through my mind? Can that really be real? Is that really happening? And then as I hear about these folks, I wonder, well, do, do they really understand the message of the Bible? Maybe they, didn't, maybe they don't really get it fully. When my reaction ought to be to jump up and down and declare, today salvation has come. To those people and rejoice with Jesus, we ought to celebrate. We ought to celebrate when salvation comes, wherever it comes, because it's the power of God on display. So one, I want to say this as we close. There may be somebody in here this morning who feels, you feel like you're beyond God's grace. Yeah, but if you'd only knew what I had done. I, we may have a mob boss here with us today. I don't know. Welcome. Zacchaeus was not beyond the reach of God's grace. And neither are you. 
one. But two, for those of us who follow Jesus, who've made his mission our mission, can we, can we allow him to work on our hearts so that we don't see anyone as beyond the reach of God's grace either? We're going to pray, and then we're going to close. We're going to sing a song of invitation. And it's an invitation to respond. It's not our invitation. It's God's invitation. There's an urgency because Jesus must be with you today. He wants to. That's the way he feels about it. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we are gathered here, not, not knowing what's going on inside the minds and hearts of those who are seated in this room, but knowing fully what's on your heart as I watch Jesus on display. Jesus, you are the one who came to seek and save the lost. Thank you for coming to save us. I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here that needs to respond to your offer of salvation, that they will come this morning. We can have the conversation about what's next. That Father will lead to change and transform lives and another one who wants to advance the mission, Jesus, that you started 2,000 years ago. We pray this in your name. And the church said, amen. Let's stand as we sing.